2006, December 1st. Today is Lecture 46, Exoplanets, Planets Around Other Stars. Today is the last lecture for Autumn Quarter 2006. Well, here we are at long last. It's the 1st of December. We started out in this class at the end of September, not too long after the, uh, the, the autumnal equinox, and now here we are within three weeks of the winter solstice, having passed through the cross-quarter day, and have gone from, so what is a season anyway, now to ask a question of, are there planets around other stars? You guys have come a long ways in this class. It's a fairly content-rich course, I know, but actually I hope you've seen that all the material actually really does hang together. You guys have been a really great class. So uh, I greatly appreciate everyone who's been coming every day. And of course, this is my last chance to give just a a little bit of a shout out to other podcast listeners who've been listening on the uh, on the little recordings here. I've been hearing from quite a number of people from as far away as Tokyo and Denmark and other places. Uh, we've we've gotten quite a bit of attention in this course. Uh, apparently, we are inadvertently. I just thought, okay, I'll just buy a microphone and a recorder and strap it on. It looks like that's it. easy to do. I'll just do that. Uh, quite unwittingly, we seem to be rather pioneering effort. Not only at this university, I think there are only two or three other courses that even do this but uh, even around the country. In fact, we're one of the few astronomy courses in the, in the world that does this, and so as a consequence, you've got a lot more virtual, stu- virtual fellow students out there, except they don't have to get up at 7.30 <laughs> on next Wednesday to take the final. Some of them have to get up at 6.30 to commute, but that's a little different. So today's class, I want to wrap it up a bit by talking about a topic that didn't exist ten, about 10 years ago. In fact, about 10, 12 years ago were the first discoveries. When I was certainly first learning astronomy, both in college and even as a kid, basically there were there was the solar system. And any comments about planets around other stars was in the realm of science fiction or pretty much speculation. People had ideas. They made analogies with respect to our own solar system. But in the last 12 years, we've gone from knowing nothing about planets around other stars to, as of today, I'm not even going to give you the exact count because it's really hard to do the counting anymore. More than 200 planets have been found around nearly as many other stars within the nearby neighborhood of the sun. Now, to go into this topic in actual detail, we'd have to have at least the first half of Astronomy 162 under our belts to know about the nature of stars, the solar neighborhood, and so forth. So what I want to concentrate on are the comparisons between these systems and the planetary system that we live in. You now have enough background that it should all begin to make sense. So today the key ideas is we're going to concentrate first on the search for stars around planets around other stars. So it's been a very challenging observational problem that required some technological breakthroughs to actually pull off. And there have been a variety of successful search techniques. And we're going to review these very quickly, the astrometric wobble technique, the Doppler wobble technique, which in fact is where most of the planets we know of has come from, planetary transits, and gravitational microlensing. The last one I'm fairly fond of because there's a team at Ohio State that's been very successful in the last couple of years of using the gravitational microlensing technique to find planets. In fact, we have two firm candidates as a consequence of the work in the last couple of years, and I'm fairly proud of that because I'm a member of that team. And then say a little bit at the end about what these extrasolar planetary systems are like. They often, what we're finding right now are Jupiter-sized planets, but they're unusually close to their parent stars. Nothing we've found so far resembles our solar system. In fact, in many ways, these are beginning to challenge our models about how the solar system formed and other solar systems like it have formed. We're learning a lot more by trying to find examples of our own system out there and finding something different. We're just entering the time 
when we're going to find things that look like our own solar system. And of course, the next step is, if we could find things like the solar system, can we find planets like the Earth? That's a question we don't know the answer to yet, but certainly a lot of people are starting to look at it. So let's actually ask what the big question is. And I certainly, I think the big question is not academic questions about how did solar systems form, but a much more personal question. Are we alone? Are we alone in the universe? The question of the existence of other planets is a very, very old one in astronomy. In fact, we know that the, a couple of Greek astronomers, in fact, considered the possibility that was the Earth the only home of life. We ask, we can break this down into a series of high-level questions. The first of which is, are there solar systems around other stars? Is our system unique, or are there systems like it? Are such solar systems like ours, or are they very different if we do find them? Are any of these having planets which are like the Earth, warm enough for liquid water, heavy atmospheres, presence of life? In fact, has life arisen on other planets? We don't know the answer to this even within our own solar system. There are only a handful of places we've seen so far in the course of this class. Maybe Mars three billion years ago, maybe under the oceans of Europa or Enceladus or places where we might find liquid water. We think that life needs a number of simple elements. It needs energy, it needs a source of heat, it needs liquid water, probably needs, you know, and it needs a place that's fairly stable where it can evolve. So what we're going to look for is where do we find liquid water, where do we have energy from sunlight, and where is that re environment relatively benign for long enough that it can go from single cellular entities to maybe someone we can have a conversation with. And that, of course, leads to the second, the last, final question of this group that everyone would really like to know is, is there any intelligent life out there? on any of these planets? Have the processes that have gone on the Earth over the last three billion years to go from the cooling Earth to people contemplating the Earth, has that occurred on other planets as well? And do we have anything to say to them? And do they have anything to say to us? Well, those are the high-level questions. But you know, this is science. We actually like some questions we can answer. It's wonderful and fun to speculate about these things. But in order to get any answers to that first set of questions that we'd really like to know, we have to ask some other questions that we can answer first. Remember, science is about posing questions and posing hypotheses we can test. So the first, some of these questions can turn into a series of problems we have to solve. The first of these is going out and looking at other stars than our own and looking at them at various stages of their existence. For example, we can go out and we can search for solar systems in the process of formation. We've hypothesized from observations within our own solar system the way in which the solar system formed, the raw materials out of which it formed, the speed with which it formed, and so forth. We can go out and look around us and find young stars that have only recently formed. They're only a billion years old or less and actually see gigantic nebulae of gas around them and spinning disks. And we can actually are starting to reach the point where we can see the kinds of disks of debris that we think our own solar system looked like more than four and a half billion years ago. So we can test some of our basic ideas about the process of formation by looking for reasonable analogs in space. We can also go out and look for things that look like we do today, what we'll call evolved solar systems around other stars. We are an evolved solar system in the sense that the solar nebula that we formed out of is cleared away, that an earlier phase of dynamical evolution has swept the objects into the various orbits that they now occupy. Can we find examples of this elsewhere in the, solar, in the, in the universe, especially nearby? And can we find some examples of these ongoing dynamical processes that, that sculpted the orbits within our own solar system? Do they occur in others? 
Once we find these solar systems, can we find planets where life might exist? What is the evidence? What is the, or the signposts that I would look for for life on other planets? One of them might be oxygen. Remember that our own atmosphere has 70, in round numbers, about 77% nitrogen, but about 22% of oxygen. How did it get that 22% of oxygen? It didn't start out that way. Well, the way it did it was through photosynthesis, through the presence of life. So one signpost we might go looking for is the presence of oxygen in the spectrum of the atmospheres of these planets. Both oxygen is O2 and oxygen in the form of ozone, O3, three, three atoms of, of oxygen put together. In fact, ozone is going to be one of the things as a biomarker. Methane is another biomarker. It's not an obvious one, right? Methane is all over Jupiter. It's reducing chemistry. Yeah, but if you find methane in an atmosphere where there's obviously oxidizing chemistry going on, it had to get there somehow. Where does the methane in our own atmosphere come from? It comes from rotting biomass and from, well, frankly, it comes from the guts of sheep and cows. Basically, anaerobic bacteria operating inside those animals. So if you see methane, a reducing compound in the presence of an oxidizing atmosphere, that means an anaerobic process has to be working and the only ones we know of are life. So those are the biomarkers we might go looking for. Finally, is there evidence of technological intelligent life on other planets? The search for extraterrestrial planets, extraterrestrial intelligence, called SETI. The latter of these is a much more speculative area, but people have begun to work on it. People begin to ask, what would we look like from the outside, and what might we expect looking out into interstellar space to look for radio signals, for example. So if you, for, for example, if you were sitting on a star 50 light years from the Earth, and you had a gigantic radio antenna, and you happened to point it at this relatively warm, relatively evolved G-type star with a solar system in it, what you would be picking up are all the radio broadcasts that went on in the year 1956. Great. Our calling card to the extraterrestrial world is reruns of I Love Lucy. But you can't generate something like that naturally. One might argue that means I Love Lucy is unnatural, but that's up to you. So let's actually pick up one of these questions. Let's go looking for searches for extraterrestrial planet systems. We think that if you want to be life, you've got to have something solid to stand on. So how do we start? We go out by trying to find other solar systems. There's two basic search strategies that are being employed. One is what I would call direct detection. This, is the, this would be the easy one, the one that would immediately obvious. Take your telescope, point it at another star, and see if there are any planets orbiting around it. Take an image of the system from the outside. Seeing, for example, that there's a bunch of Jupiters or Saturns or stuff orbiting around them. Or maybe if the solar system that we're looking at is edge-on, every now and then those planets will come between us and their parent star. They'll block some of the starlight, and so the light from that star will dip a bit. We call this, when a planet crosses the surface of its parent star, a transit. And you get a very characteristic drop in brightness. This turns out to be, at least the first one, direct imaging of planets is technologically exceedingly difficult and has not yet been achieved. It basically needs an entirely new imaging technologies to be developed, and they're still in progress. The Large Binocular Telescope, for example, is developing an interferometric technique that may, in fact, begin to image bright Jupiters in the infrared, where Jupiter-like planets shine of their own light and are not as bright as the nearby star. The starlight star to planet contrast is huge. Stars are so much brighter than, their host, than, than the planets around them 
that we have to basically look for a tiny little firefly blip of light in front of an immense searchlight. It's a very difficult and technologically challenging problem. Transits are also a challenging problem, but they're challenging because they're expected to be rare. But in fact, a number of planets have been found that way, as we'll see in a moment. Well, the other way we can do this is what I would call an indirect technique. I don't actually take a picture or see the example of the planet there affecting the light from the object, but planets have mass. And as we know from Newton's laws, that objects orbiting each other orbit around a common center of mass. So I can try to detect their planets by seeing the reflex orbital motions of the star because it and a planet are orbiting around a common center of mass. Now I can do this in a couple of ways. One is I can look for the Doppler shift. I can look for the motions of that star in reflex due to, a, say, a giant Jupiter around it. Or I can use an even more exotic technique where Einstein's theory of gravity tells us that gravity bends light as it passes around massive objects. And so the objects can act as a sense of a kind of a gravitational lens. If only a star is there, the gravitational lens will look one way. But if there's a star plus a giant planet, then that lensing signature will look slightly different. Instead of holding one lens up, I've got two little tiny lenses I'm holding up. And the signature is very different. So both of these techniques turn out to be fairly successful, as is the transit technique, whereas direct imaging is still a technique for the future. So let's look at this wobbling stars idea. This, goes, this is the most successful of the techniques. Newton's version of Kepler's laws, remember, tell us that planets orbit around their parent star with the center of mass at one focus. Okay? This, is Newton, this is Kepler's first law as reimagined by Isaac Newton. So I've shown a planet, a star, with a planet orbiting around it. And I've exaggerated the mass ratio. But I show that there is a center of mass, the balance point between them. And I've put them both on circular orbits. The planet is on a fast orbit around there. The star slowly, but on the same period, orbits around with a certain reflex motion. So the star is going to orbit at a much smaller distance from the center of mass because it's the heavier thing, just like the balance beam with the warthogs many, many weeks ago. The fat warthog sits near the center of mass. The lightweight warthog is out on the end. The same is true for stars and planets. If I look at this from the outside, what I would see is I wouldn't see the planet because it's too faint to see. I just see the star. And I would see the star wobbling back and forth around its center of mass. It would actually appear to be moving around an empty point in space. And I could infer from that motion, the only way you can get that is, it must be orbiting a massive object. I apply Newton's laws, and voila, I measure the orbit, and I measure the mass of the other object. This will manifest, this wobble will manifest itself in one of two different ways. One of these we'll call astrometric wobble. Basically, the star wobbles back and forth as seen with respect to background stars, which are so far away they don't appear to be moving. So for example, let's say that we were to step aside for a moment, step out 10 light years away and look back on the sun, looking down upon the ecliptic plane from above. What I would see is that the sun from 1990 up through the year 2020 would actually not be sitting still, but would in fact follow this rather wacky looking loop-de-loop -loop path. What we're seeing is the motion of the sun relative to the center of mass of the solar system. So the combined gravity of Jupiter and Saturn, the two biggest planets, plus everything else, the sun has to move so as to keep the center of mass at one focus of the entire n-body system. 
Now, what I've drawn here is this yellow circle is the diameter of the sun. So you can see that even for a system like our own, with a 318 Earth mass, now I'll just say one Jupiter mass planet, five astronomical units out, and a somewhat smaller fraction of a Jupiter mass planet, about a third of a Jupiter mass planet or less, yeah, third, less than a third of a Jupiter mass planet out of 10 AUs, that really dominates the wobble. That wobble path is barely bigger than the diameter of the sun. So we're looking at a very challenging observation here. Basically, this wobble is extremely small. These axes here are one one thousandth of a second of arc. That's one three million six thousand six hundred thousandth of a degree. It's tiny. Now, this is the best done looking down on the orbital plane. Of course, if you were looking from the side, what you would see is you would see the sun kind of be jiggering back and forth. But in a very rhythmic pattern, the fact that it's interlocking loops would tell you immediately there were at least two multiple, two massive planets there. Now, it turns out that this is from, I'm sorry, this is actually from 18 light years away, not 10. This is going to be a very challenging observation. There is, however, a new technology telescopes going up, the Space Interferometry Mission, or SIM, which hopefully will be launched in about 2012 or so, actually has the kind of pointing precision that can actually measure this kind of astrometric wobble in nearby stars. A further mission called Gaia, which is being worked on by the Europeans, will also be able to measure this. So this becomes a technique for the, for the future, but it's certainly plausible within given technology it just takes a $2 billion space mission and many years to get it prepared. But it turns out we don't have to wait for a $2 billion space mission to do this because we can also see the effect of motion due to the Doppler effect. You may remember the Doppler effect is that if a light source is moving towards you or away from you, the wavelength of the light shifts. Shifts towards the blue if it's moving towards you, shifts towards the red if the source is moving away from you. Well, of course, if two objects are orbiting around each other so that the star is rhythmically going towards you and away from you, you get a little tiny Doppler shift. And Doppler shifts are actually a lot easier to measure than measuring tiny, tiny angles for astrometric wobble. So you take the star in that same picture. The planet's here, but I don't see the planet's spectrum at all. But I see the spectrum of the star. The star is a hot, dense ball of gas, so it produces a continuous spectrum. But its upper atmosphere has a cool gas. And you remember Kirchhoff's third law. A cool gas, a bright continuum source viewed through a cool gas shows an absorption line spectrum. And sure enough, in the star's spectrum, I expect to see absorption lines. In this case, I've drawn the absorption lines of hydrogen for simplicity. Now, in this particular configuration, I'm looking at the star from the um, left side of the, of the screen. The star at this point of its orbit is coming towards me and the planet's going away. What I would see in the spectrum is that the, the wavelengths of all the hydrogen lines have shifted slightly to the blue. I get a blue Doppler shift. If I wait half an orbital period later, now the star is moving away from me and the planet's moving towards me, and I see the star's spectrum now is shifted to the red. So what I would get is if I watched the star's spectrum night after night, year after year, I would see the star's spectral lines first blue shift, then red shift, and then blue shift in a rhythmic repeating pattern, which is the period of the orbit of the star and the planet around their common center of mass. So I can use the astronomical equivalent of basically a police radar gun this time, instead of bouncing signals off the object, I'm watching the light from the object itself. And I measure what's called the Doppler wobble. 
The Doppler wobble, <clears throat> if I measure the orbital speed and I measure the period, how long it takes to go blue shift to red shift and back to blue shift for that pattern of blue shift and red shift to repeat, that's the orbital period, P. If I get some idea of the size of the object, I know the mass of the star from various ex uh, other means, I can measure the mass of the planet surrounding it, or at least estimate the mass of the planet. This is the Doppler wobble technique. It's remarkably successful. Most of the 200 planets we know of have been found by this technique. Now, the Doppler wobbler me measurements, however, are not easy. They're straightforward, but not easy. The speed of the greater mass of the star means its orbit's going to make its orbital speed very small. Here's an example. Let's take our own solar system. Let's assume that from the outside, all I see is the Sun and Jupiter for simplicity. Jupiter has an orbital speed of 13 kilometers per second. That's how fast Jupiter has to move around. So it goes around its orbit with a 5.2 astronomical unit radius in 11.2 years. The Sun is going to move around the common Jupiter-Sun center of mass by 13 meters per second. Okay, a meter per second, to put it in scale, is about this fast. I can walk across the stage at a couple meters per second. I can run at a few meters per second for short distances. Right? Put it in perspective. Let's say a person who can do a 100-yard dash in 10 seconds. No, that'd be kind of fast. Yeah, someone who could do a 100, yeah, someone who could do a 100-yard dash in 10 seconds, that's a 100-meter dash in 10 seconds. They're moving at 10 meters per second. So this is, this is basically a very fast running pace. So I've got to be able to detect a running pace motion in a star many light years away. This means I have to measure that Doppler shift to extremely high precision. But in fact, we can do this. And the current precision of the state of the art for measuring Doppler shifts is now getting to be less than one meter per second. I could actually, with this equipment, holding a light source with a, nice, a well-defined spectrum, walking towards the spectrograph at about this speed, it could actually tell the difference between me moving and me standing still. It's a phenomenal precision it's capable of. Well, the technology that permitted this to happen really didn't really come into fruition until the late 1980s, early 1990s. In around 1987, 1988, people began an effort to push down the precision with which they could measure speeds. And in 1995, Michel Mayor and Didier Coyoz of the Geneva Observatory reported that they had been watching a series of nearby sun-like stars with their high-precision spectrograph and had detected a rhythmic periodic wobble in the star 51 Pegasi. This is a sun-like star about 40 light years away in the constellation of Pegasus. Its wobble was big. It was 56 meters per second. That's a lot bigger than the wobble in the sun due to Jupiter. The period, however, was shocking. It was 4.23 days. The sun view from outside would have a 13 meter per second amplitude with an 11.2 year period. So this thing has got an orbit of 4.23 days. Kepler's third law tells us that this thing is approximately a 0.5 Jupiter mass planet, 0.05 astronomical units from a toast star. Jupiter is 5.2 astronomical units from the sun. It's 100 times closer to its parent star than Jupiter is to our own sun. This was a real shock. This was a Jupiter where it didn't belong, right? The orbit of Mercury is 0.3. This is six times closer to the parent star than Mercury ever gets, six or seven times closer than Mercury ever gets. 
what's a gas giant doing that close to its star? And it wasn't the first. Of course, the fact that it is such a massive star close enough gives you a huge velocity signature, so they were able to pick it up before they'd really beaten the precision down of their technique, but this was a really shocking result. This is the first extrasolar planet around a sun-like star. There have been other detections around strange stars like pulsars, but this one was the really first really big extrasolar planet in 1995. Since 1995, in the last 11 years, we have gone from one to more than 200. So that's the Doppler wobble technique. The other is that the planet's orbital plane. Imagine I've got a, a system where, the, where I'm looking at the, the equivalent of the ecliptic plane of that system nearly edge on. Then, of course, what will happen is every now and then that Jupiter planet or whatever planet may be in front of it may pass between me and the star. In this case, what's going to happen is we've got a little blue planet here and a star. I take and measure the brightness of the star at this position. I can't see the planet here at all. It's completely lost in the glare, but I see the light from the star. And then the planet begins to pass in front of the star. It blocks some of the starlight, and the light from the star suddenly dims. So this plot here on the bottom is showing brightness or intensity of the star as a function of time. At mid-transit, we're still blocking the same amount. We block basically enough of the body of the planet, so it's always the same blocking it here, and then all of a sudden it emerges from in front of the star, and we're back to the same brightness. So you get this very characteristic dip in the spectrum of the star. Now, for a Jupiter-sized planet, a tenth of an astronomical unit or less from its parent star, and the star is about like the size of the sun, which is 700,000 kilometers in radius, this dip is going to be around 1 to 2 percent. So we've got to have very high precision photometry. And for some of these planets, this thing's going to last maybe a few hours. So we've got to catch it just right within that, that period. About five or more transiting candidates have been found so far. In fact, the number should really be more like 15. I've actually dropped off a, a number here. We found about 10 of these. It requires very high precision photometry. You have to look at thousands upon thousands of stars before you can find this. This is an example of the very first transiting planet that was found. It has the wonderful name HD 209458b. HD is basically a star catalog, and it's the 209,458th entry is the name of that star. The planet is about 0.7 the mass of Jupiter, so it's a bit bigger than Saturn, but smaller than Jupiter. It's orbiting 0.045 astronomical units from its parent star. That way, it fractionally covers a big area. This proportion here is about right in this cartoon on the right. And the orbital period is about three and a half days. The actual transit itself lasts less than a tenth of a day. It's only a little over an hour and a half, two-hour transit. This is some data taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. You now see the individual measurements of the brightness of the star. And then the planet begins to eclipse the star and then emerge from the eclipse. Notice the drop here. It goes from 1 to 0.985. This is a one, in round numbers, this is a 0.16% diminution in brightness. This requires very high precision photometry. There's another technique, which is to use the gravity of the star itself as a way to reveal the presence of the, of the extra planet. So let's say we have the Earth here, and we have a foreground star, and there's a background star, and they line up. When they line up, light from general relativity tells us should bend around the intervening star. And actually, instead of the light going off in that direction, the light actually gets bent and comes down to the Earth, adding to the light that comes directly from the star. 
So the combination of light from all these rays actually makes the star in the background star suddenly get a little brighter as it goes in front of this nearby star, behind, or passes behind this nearby star. This is called amplification by gravitational microlensing. Now, if I measure the brightness of this combined foreground and background star, these stars are not fixed. They're always constantly in motion. And so as this background star sweeps around in the background of the lensing star in front, what I find is I get a characteristic bump in the signal. As it passes directly behind the star, I get a slight amplification. The star combination appears to get brighter, and it gets fainter again in a very characteristic pattern. To get an idea of what that's like, get yourself a lens, or if you don't wear, you know, you don't have a conveniently wear one of these things on your face, hold a lens off at a distance and sweep it in front of a light between you you get an amplification of that background light as you sweep the lens in front of it. It's exactly what's going on. It's geometric lensing from glass and geometric lensing from gravitational fields works almost exactly the same. So it's a very characteristic pattern when you see a gravitational microlensing event. But what would happen if instead of just being the parent star and there's no other gravity source in there, you get a perfect gravitational lens and you get this beautiful little bump. But what if there was a planet around that lensing star. Then its gravity will act like a smaller, weaker lens on top of the larger lens of the star itself. And so the pattern of brightening will show that same underlying pattern, but when the starlight, if it fortuitously passes over that planet orbiting lens, boop, you get a little extra blip. This is referred to as a lensing anomaly, but if you saw this by measuring the size of the blip and the width of the blip compared to this, you get the mass ratio between the two stars. Now this was worked out by a number of theorists a number of years in advance when microlensing was first detected in looking at stars towards the galactic bulge and towards the LMC, and people realized that gravitational microlensing could be a powerful way to find planets around stars that you could not measure using the Doppler techniques or anything else. In fact, one of the main theorists who actually developed these techniques was Andrew Gould, who's a professor here at Ohio State. He formed a group with a number of instrument builders, Darren DePoy and myself, to actually begin the search for these planetary microlensing anomalies. Because these things can take many days, you have to catch it during that brief hour or so when the actual blip occurs. It could be one to two hours when the blip occurs. You don't want it to be happening when the star you want to look at is up at night, but it's daytime in your location. So what you do is you do this from the southern hemisphere where we look towards the high density of stars towards the galactic bulge, and we have observers in longitude all over the Earth. We have network observers in New Zealand, Australia, South America, South Africa, even on the island of Tahiti, so that even when the star is setting from one location, it's rising in another so I can get 24-hour coverage. It's called the Microlensing Follow-Up Network, or MicroFun for short. Microfun is operated as a consortium out of OSU, and we've discovered so far two planets using this lensing technique in the last few years. Here's the first of these. This is a star um, towards the galactic bulge. Here are the measurements of the brightness of this thing, and then suddenly there's this weird double bump. This double bump with a funny hump in there, there's the details of this, actually is the sign of a planet surrounding the lensing star. The critical data over these little bumps here, which give you the mass of that planet, were not taken by professional astronomers using high-class techniques. They were taken by two New Zealand amateur astronomers using commercial amateur telescopes. In fact, here they are. 
Grant Christie and Jenny McCormick of New Zealand actually took the critical observations. They're part of the Microfund network. One of their rewards for this is these guys own some very fancy amateur telescopes now purchased courtesy of the NAS National Astronautics and Space Administration. It's part of a network of people looking for these. This is one planet. We found another one earlier this year. And there's at least one candidate in the hopper from the data this year. So it's a very interesting technique. It's not as high yield as Doppler wobble, but we found them. It's really quite exciting. In fact, one of the things that makes microlensing so exciting is the fact that it doesn't have to be a Jupiter-sized planet. In fact, one of the ones we found was a Neptune-sized planet using this technique. And an extension of these techniques could, in fact, eventually, within the next decade, get us down to finding Earth-mass planets around other stars. Well, let's just sort of get to the bottom line here. As of November this year, 2006, more than 200 planets have been found around other stars, most of them within the neighborhood of the sun, within the inner sort of 50, 50 light years or more, actually almost to 100 light years from the sun. Most of these at this point are single planet detections, meaning you know, finding Jupiter around the sun, but not exactly seeing Saturn yet in some cases. A number of multi-planet systems, some of which have as many as four Jupiter to Saturn-sized planets around them. So we only have one Jupiter. Some systems actually have four Jupiters. The sizes of planets we're sensitive to by these techniques have got to be big, because they've got to have a big gravitational influence on their parent star, which means right now we're most sensitive to Jupiters. In fact, planets as big as 13 times the mass of Jupiter. You can do the math on that. That's getting over 400 times the mass of the Earth have been found around sun-like stars. And we're just starting to get down to Neptune-type masses with some of the lensing techniques and a couple of the Doppler wobbles. And one of the lensing planets not found by our group, but another one may in fact have found a planet getting down around six or eight Earth masses. And they're often referred to generically as super-Earths. Now, all of these planets so far have been found on orbits within five astronomical units of their parent star. Part of this has to do with the amount of time that has been elapsed for the experiment. We've only been doing this for about 12 years, so you're only going to be sensitive to planets which are on 12-year periods. That's five astronomical units from a Sun-like star. If I want to start getting stuff further and further out, we've got to watch for 20, 30, 40 years. So we would have discovered Jupiter and seen the signs of Saturn in the Sun using these techniques. But we wouldn't have watched the solar system long enough to have detected Saturn. So this is where we are. We've gone from nothing in 1995 to more than 200 stars. I used to give the exact number and breakdown, but I just gave up because the tables now go page after page. The answer is a whole bunch of, and we're getting more every year. Here's the quick graphical version of how many of these planets have been found, five astronomical units. We're just now starting to find Jupiter-type planets in Jupiter-type orbits. That kind of makes the rest of us feel good, but every single one of those is found because, in fact, we found a close ju in Jupiter. Here's one astronomical unit. Here's the Earth orbit, and you can barely read the numbers here. There are more than 200 planets in this thing, but the first ones found are the ones that are closest in, and now we're beginning to find them further and further out. There's even some four- and three-planet Jupiter systems in here. These are crazy places. Here's one of the more fancy ones. This is the 55 Cancri system, which actually has four planets in it now. Here's the Earth and Jupiter in our solar system. Here's the 55 Cancri system. It's a slightly lower mass, redder star. There's two Jupiters in inside the Earth-type orbits, and a Jupiter about in Jupiter orbit. And it's a little bit bigger than Jupiter in this position. 
So we're now starting to find some very interesting systems to begin to study. Now there's some caveats I have to throw out here, some provisos to sort of throw some water on the fact that everything looks weird. One of them is that Doppler wobbles are only detectable to large planets like Jupiter. So we haven't found Earths, not because Earths are not out there necessarily, but because our techniques are not sensitive to them yet. I can find the big ones. It's going to take me a while, take us a while to get the techniques down where we can find things down below Neptune masses. So we're still working in the super-Earth gas giant phase. But the time is coming that we're going to be getting down to Earth probably in the next decade. That's really where the technology is going. The mass estimates, when I say, oh yeah, 5 Jupiters, 13 Jupiters, these are all going to be, for the most part, the smallest mass that can explain the observed wobble because I don't know the exact inclination of the orbit with respect to my line of sight and how the Doppler motions project geometrically. That's the biggest bugaboo in this, in this game here with the Doppler wobbles. If you're right down in the plane where you see an eclipse, see a transit, then you can nail the mass really, really accurately. But there's only a handful of systems for which we can do that so far. The Doppler techniques, as I said before, just remind you, is only sensitive right now out to about Jupiter's at 5 AU because they've only been running for about 15 years. So another few decades, they're going to start, the fact that they picked up close Jupiter's, so those are the first ones you're going to find because they're the ones at the shortest orbits. To get the longer orbits, we're just now crossing into the Jupiter-like, oh no, our Jupiter orbit horizon. So we're just now beginning to see those objects. And finally, this transit technique is great. It gives you a lot of data. It lets you measure the diameter of the planet. It lets you measure its mass to high accuracy. It lets you look for funny atmospheric effects. But it only works for the really closest in Jupiter-like planets. These wacko hot Jupiters, they're like 0.05 AUs from their parent star. So while it gives us a lot of information, it's giving us information about some strange systems. So it's not going to be very effective at telling us something about a Jupiter-like planet in a Jupiter-like orbit around its parent star. So while it's really cool stuff, we've got to sort of take a deep breath and say, yes, but we're not learning about things like what we know. So these are kind of the provisos, but it's an immensely exciting field. Now, none of the systems we've found so far resemble our solar system. This is one of the real takeaway points I want to get from this lecture. So, you know, takeaway point number one is that we can now find planets around other stars and we know of more than 200. And that number keeps increasing every day. Well, every other week or so. But we haven't found anything that resembles our own solar system yet in more than 200 systems. The biggest surprise, the thing that really surprised and just confuses everybody, at least certainly for a while, is why we're seeing Jupiter-sized planets so close to their parent star. Remember all that stuff about the frost line and Jupiter's form far out and rocky planets form far in? What are Jupiter's doing inside the orbit of Mercury? They're not supposed to be there according to our basic ideas of planetary formation. These things are deep inside the frost line. How are they going to get gases and volatiles where the gases are supposed to be hot? They're not supposed to be there. Well, obviously they are. <laughs> Sometimes nature says, well, I don't care what you think it is. Here's what it is. This is how science works. Science is self-correcting. When we have an idea we think is pretty good, but the data come along and say, no, it's wrong. Or we have to rethink our ideas about how solar systems form and evolve. We thought that our system was really an exemplar for doing that. But maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe we are unique in some way. 
It's not a question we know the answer to yet, and I, I wish I could say we're going to find the answer soon, but we're working on it. So what's going on here? Well, I could give an entire lecture on what might be going on, but let's just go to the bottom line. What's going on? It's actually a variation on a theme we've already seen in this class. It's called migration. Jovian planets, let's say this idea says, our ideas about how solar systems form are actually okay. But what we've got to get through our head is how it forms and then how it evolves into a stable configuration are two different things. So that the planetary systems start out forming the way our own solar system probably did. The Jupiters form far away, out away from the star where it's cold beyond the frost line, and they grow to big size. But because they experience a drag from their primordial solar gas disk that may have been much larger than experienced by our own solar system, that drag actually acts to migrate that giant planet inwards towards the center of its parent star. This migration would continue until you get to the inner edge of the disk. Now, in order to get drag, you've got to have a lot of stuff. And so one thing that might be the case is what we're picking up now are those planets that formed in stellar nebulae that were much, much heavier, much, much more massive than the one that our own sun had when it was born. So one idea is what we're seeing is a different dynamical evolution of the system after formation. The Jupiter forms out at 5, 6, wherever AUs, migrates inward, as it does so, it spits everything out along its way, and then finally that migration stops at the inner edge of the disk, and in some of these systems, the inner edge of the disk is about 0.05 astronomical units, according to observations of stars with disks around them, young stars with disks around them. So this is a plausible explanation. We're seeing an extreme form of migration that we saw in our own solar system. Jupiter formed further out than five astronomical units, migrated in a few tenths of an AU. We saw that Neptune, in fact, has moved out about five astronomical units in the early phases of the solar system. So we know migration works in our system. That's why we see the resonant capture of the asteroids by Jupiter and the resonant capture of the Kuiper belt by Neptune. Those objects have moved and dynamically evolved. But what if that dynamical evolution is not as gentle as it is in our solar system, but is much more violent? Maybe this more violent dynamical evolution leads to large-scale migration. That's the, our idea is right, but its evolution is different explanation. The other is that these close Jupiters did not form the same way Jupiter formed in our own solar system, meaning that there are different modalities, different ways in which planets can form out of their parent gas nebulae. So we happen to live in a system where that formation was a very simple bottom-up kind of picture where you form a rocky core and then you accrete stuff on top of it and away you go. Sort of a local accumulation picture where gravity only becomes important later in the process. But some people wonder if, in fact, these close Jupiters found with gas very close to the star aren't giving evidence of a formation process that occurs gravity first. These occur not because of slow accumulation, but because of large-scale instabilities, gravitational instabilities in the disk that very rapidly grow a gas giant, and those same gravitational instabilities cause a rapid inward migration. Such planets would be, in their detailed properties, very different in their interiors from what Jupiter and Saturn look like in our own system. So this would be, actually, maybe, what we're seeing is evidence of a different way of forming planets. 
And then the question comes back, what determines which of the modalities of planet formation a system pursues? So there's lots of interesting questions. We found a mystery here. We found something we didn't expect. It's opening up a whole new class of questions that we can begin to answer. So what's the future of this? Well, certainly the search for other systems is continuing. We've been in a discovery phase for the last decade. But you know, discovery is great. It gets you in the newspapers. But the really big questions are, why are we seeing what we're seeing? What are the astrophysical questions we can answer? We're just starting to make that move now. We've got enough data that we can start asking interesting questions. How often are we going to start? We should be getting to start finding planetary systems like our own. The techniques are now reaching the point we should find Jupiters and Jupiter-type orbits, and we are. We should start seeing more of those in the next few years. I'm really waiting for the time that someone comes up with a planetary system that looks like the solar system. It's coming. It's not there yet, but it's on its way. How common are planetary systems? Does every star have a planet around it or not? Actually, a number of our students and young professors in our department have actually been working on this problem. We're still, we still don't have a good number. It might be as low as 10% or less of all stars have planetary systems. And what determines whether a star gets a planetary system or not? The future goals, we found Jupiters, let's find Earths. If we can find Earths, then we've actually started down to the point where you can see small things. Once you find Earth mass things, now what you want to do is find an Earth mass planet in an orbit where water can be liquid, where it could form an atmosphere, where it could be a solid place for life to evolve. And then you search for life markers like oxygen and ozone and methane that says, oxidizing atmosphere, but life be here. Can you imagine what a revolutionary idea that would be to find a place somewhere in our stellar neighborhood where we see all the biomarkers on a rocky planet like the Earth? It would completely change the way in which we view the world. I thank you very much for the last 10 weeks. I'll see you all on Wednesday.